Let's pray. Lord God, we come before You yet again this morning asking that You would speak to us through Your Word. Lord, without You, we are without light. We are like men and women stumbling around in the darkness. But may Your Word be a lamp unto our feet. May we see You in it. May we see Your truth, Lord, and may we walk according to it. It's in Your name we pray. Amen. So now, uh, we're in week three here of the government uh, series, King of Kings. And as we consider yet again, what does the Bible ask of us? What does it demand of us as Christians? Uh, We can note that there are things that are often endlessly repeated, and they're endlessly repeated to us in such a way that we just assume that they are true. One such lie is is some variation of this statement, which you will hear uh, again and again, God is not political. God is not Republican or Democrat. The Bible doesn't address politics. Now, all good lies have an element of truth in them. God is not a Republican or a Democrat. But that does not mean he doesn't have things to say about these issues. That doesn't mean the Bible has nothing to say politically. We're three weeks into this now, and you're going to see by the end of this, he's got a lot of things to say about this area of life. God most definitely cares how his people act in the political realm of life. He cares about how you conduct yourselves, how you cast your votes, how you think and reason about these issues. You are to act in submission to the lordship and kingship of Christ in all of your life. So, for example, it was wrong for Christians in the 1800s to support politicians who supported slavery. Full stop. That was a sin. They shouldn't have done that. It was also wrong for Christians to support um, things like segregation. Some did, some didn't in the 1950s. If you supported politicians who would use your delegated power to do that, you were in sin. Full stop. Now it's easy to point out the sins of past generations. It's easy to do that. I'm not going to get in any trouble saying things like that today. But it is also unquestionably wrong to use your political power to support the murder of children in the womb, to support infanticide, to support gender mutilation of children today. God hates those things. Absolutely. California literally just made a move to legalize killing newborns up to 30 days old. And we're considered the extreme ones. Right? This, this should shock us. This should make us righteously angry. God does not turn a blind eye to such evil and wickedness. Our age may be confused, just as ages past were confused, but God is not confused. He has things to say. And Christians should listen. And so Christianity, in one sense, is not political. It's not partisan, because God doesn't really care what letter is next to a person's name. But there's another sense in which the Bible and Christianity and God are political. And by that I mean Christianity is pre-political. What does that mean? It means your Christianity comes before your politics. 
It is foundational to your politics. Your politics are to be built upon your faith, not the other way around. Your faith should not be built upon your politics. Something must come first. Our beliefs and our morality are pre-political. They are meant to hem us in and to shape how we act. Far too often, people act exactly in the opposite direction. They make politics into an idol. So let me, let me phrase it um, a new way that might help you see if this is becoming an idol for you or not. If your preferred politician or political party or whatever, if they can change their beliefs on something in no matter what direction and you will support them no matter what, then that has become your God. That has become your God. If there is no position your favored politician or party could take, that you would then remove your support from it because you must follow Christ instead of man, then you are in sin. And it really is that simple. Today, we're going to look at a passage where Christ addresses a question of politics in his day. You're going to see that Christ here is far from not being political in his answer. But he also lays down a truth and an eternal principle that we need to see properly, understanding, uh, as we hope to understand the government as Christians. And that idea is something called sphere sovereignty. What is sphere sovereignty? Well, we're going to dive into that some today. But it is that life is made up of different governments more than just the state. And that these different governments have spheres of authority that they are meant to function within. There is the government of the individual, the government of the family, the government of the church, and the government of the state. And each has God-given authority and a God-given design. And yet they remain distinct. And so as we understand the context of Christ's command here, to give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to give to God what is God, this becomes so familiar to you, you've heard it probably a million times, that you miss the drama of what is actually going on in this encounter. So first, we have to note, as we dive into this, that this is a trick question. The Pharisees go to Christ to put him into a situation in which they think they have him in a no-win situation. Well, he, he will be damaged one way or the other. This is often how politics goes. We try to get a gotcha question. You either answer it this way or that way. Either way, you're in trouble. And this is why most politicians won't answer your questions. Because they're always expecting it as a gotcha. And so they'll just say whatever they want to say without actually answering the question. And the trap here, and Jesus knowing that it's a trap, is why his first words to the Pharisees is to insult them. Someone comes to you and asks a question, and you say, you hypocrite. That's not a nice thing to say. And yet, Jesus was right and righteous in doing so. And this trick question puts Jesus in that no-win situation. For, if he says this, no, you do not have to pay taxes to Caesar. His opponents are certain to run straight to Caesar to have Jesus arrested and executed as an insurrectionist. But, If Jesus merely affirms the right of Rome to tax the people, he will alienate the people of Israel because they are occupied by a foreign and oppressive government who has levied heavy taxes upon the people of Israel, forcing many of them into poverty. So this is the trap that is set for Jesus. You either offend Rome or you offend your followers. And Jesus leaves them confounded by his answer, and he gets out of the trap just fine. So let's, let's dive into this 
answer by Christ in the question and what it has to say to us about government as Christians. The first, as I've already noted for you, this whole exchange is fascinating. The Pharisees approach Jesus, and to set a good trap, they try to puff him up. Note what they say to Christ. Teacher, we know that you are true, and that you teach the way of God truthfully. We know you don't care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. We know you'll say whatever you want. So go ahead and say whatever you want. They said this with malice and evil intent, but they're right. They didn't actually believe Jesus was teaching the way of God truthfully, but he was. And he, he didn't really care what they thought. Second, Jesus is not falling for it. That's why he calls them hypocrites. And he asks for a coin. Now this is telling because the Pharisees are able to produce a Roman coin right away, showing that they have already bought into Rome. They already have Rome in their pocket and they are in Rome's pocket. They're not really upset about the taxes at all. That's not the point of the question. The point of the question is to get Jesus into trouble. Third, Jesus asked them whose likeness and inscription is on the coin. And the answer, of course, is Caesar. They have Caesar in their pocket. But we should note the, the asking of whose inscription is on the coin. Because if you know anything about the context here, that is a rather important thing. On our coin, on our money, it says, in God we trust. Well, at Rome at that time, with the picture of Caesar on it, underneath Caesar, it had, or maybe above Caesar, on the coin, it had Caesar's title. His title was Son of God. That's what the money said. Picture of Caesar calling him the Son of God. This demonstrates the tension in the discussion, Caesar claims to be divine. Jesus, or Caesar claims to be the Lord and Savior, as I mentioned last week, and also the Son of God. If you've read your New Testament at all, you know all three of those titles rightly belong to one person, and it's not Caesar. So the Pharisees are literally carrying around blasphemy in their pockets. And after, when Christ is being put on trial, they will say, To Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. They are sold out. So you literally have the one who is the son of God holding a coin with the picture of Caesar on it who is claiming to be son of God. Fourth, Jesus then affirms, even with all of that, that Caesar has a right to what is his. He affirms the necessity of paying our taxes. For Caesar, as we saw last week in Romans chapter 13, has a God-given role to punish evildoers and to bear the sword. And to do that role, Caesar has every single right to collect taxes to do his job. He provides a service, and he should be paid for that service so that he can conduct it. Thus, Christians are called to joyfully pay their taxes. And again, we must keep in mind here that Jesus says this in a state in which the taxes were oppressive and drove people into poverty. Caesar still remains his power to tax. The natural question becomes then, since this is a trick question, how has Jesus not walked right into the trap? He avoided the charge of being an insurrectionist. 
by affirming Caesar's right to tax, but how has he not just lost all of the people of Israel? Why are the Pharisees confounded by his answer? And that's found in the second part of the statement. We often hear talking about render under Caesar what is Caesar's, but that's only half of what Christ had to say. He then said this, And give to God the things that are God's. Jesus says that there are things that Caesar has absolutely no right to whatsoever. And there are some things that don't belong to him and only rightly belong to God. And that is what leaves the Pharisees speechless. Some commentators note in here that Jesus asks the question very specifically that whose image is on the coin? Well, the image is Caesar's. And then when he says, give to God what is God, he's talking about you. You bear the image of God. You bear the image of God, and you belong to God, not to Caesar. So what's so important about all of this? Well, to put it quite plainly, Caesar would not agree with Jesus' statement at all. There is no part of life which Caesar at that point in time did not claim to have a right to. Caesar claims to be divine. Later on in Roman history, Caesar will enforce people to worship him or die. There is nothing, according to Caesar's arguments, that escapes his rule in his reign. And so Christ draws a line or he builds a wall around Caesar, limiting Caesar's authority and thus undermines the political thinking of his day and shows that unlike the Pharisees, Jesus is not in Caesar's pocket. He's not working for him. And so he he exposes the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He affirms the right of the state to tax. He limits the state's authority to tax and to take from the people. And he does all of that in a very short, pithy answer. This is why they are left speechless. In just one sentence, Jesus turns all of these things upside down. You see, for much of world history, rulers claimed some connection to the divine some divine right to rule. Pharaoh was a god. Caesar was the son of God. Kings claimed special powers from or special access to God. But Christianity said none of that is true. The state has a delegated and limited authority from God. The state is not divine. There are limits upon what it can demand of its people. There are things that the state has no right to whatsoever, for these things are God's. And most clearly here, the application is to religious or the religious realm of life. The state has no right over the church. It has no right over religious belief and practice. This is why the First Amendment of the United States Constitution is a good and righteous thing something to be cherished and protected at all costs. This discussion, to give to Caesar's his and to God his, leads to the natural question. Who gets to determine what belongs to who? Now, as a Christian, the answer is really clear. God gets to determine what belongs to Caesar and what doesn't. Because God created everything, and this means everything is his. And it means that everything that is Caesar's Even that coin is ultimately God's. The problem is, Caesar doesn't agree. He sees nothing that is not his. 
And this is not some ancient political philosophy. It is still alive and well today. Many modern leftists and statists still believe that everything should ultimately belong to the government. They want to replace God with themselves. They say the government owns your body. The government owns your property. The government even may own your children. There's a state politician in Virginia who just in the last month introduced a bill staking the state's claim over the children of Virginia. Now we should be very thankful that this will certainly not pass, but it is openly being put forward. That if you do not affirm an LGBTQ whatever alphabet soup child, if you don't raise that child according to the state's desire, the state will take your child. That is, the state ultimately owns your child. That's what one legislator in Virginia wants to do. Similarly, in California, because it's always California, they want to pass a law that would lure kids away from their parents and other states that would protect parental rights and then have them set free from their parents once they get to California. When you turn Caesar into God, he tries to own everything. Be very careful what you wish for, because if you've read any history books, you know that Caesar is a terrible God. The state is more like Satan than it is like God. Christians must hold this truth tenaciously. God owns everything, and the state does not. God sets limits upon the state. The state does not set limits upon God and his authority. To get this wrong is to fall into idolatry and blasphemy. God appoints the borders of Caesar's power, and that largely revolves around bearing the sword to punish evildoers. Romans 13. So Jesus' Jesus's answer here establishes for us what theologians call sphere sovereignty. It's the idea, as I've already said, of multiple spheres of authority in life, or different forms of government that are appointed by God, that are largely, though not wholly, independent. These governments, not talking about just the state, are established by God, and the authority within those spheres of government are delegated by God. Each one of these spheres has a government that is limited and legitimatized by God, giving them authority. And these spheres include this, the individual, the family, the church, and the state. We don't talk about them as governments anymore, but they really are. We still sometimes hear in theological discussions, church government. The state is not the only government. Within these spheres, there are governing structures and authority fixed by God. These spheres are not wholly independent because they do have things to say to one another. The state and the church can rightly intercede on the behalf of abused children. The state can prevent pagan cults from practicing human sacrifice. The church does instruct the family, the state, and the individual as to how they are to conduct themselves. And society functions best when each is playing its part as assigned by God. But let's dive into these a little deeper. The first government is the government of the individual self. As we saw two weeks ago, we are born with a horizontal self-determination. Right? Not a vertical one. God determines who you are, but horizontally, you have a certain amount of God-given freedom and liberty to pursue what you want to pursue. 
as long as, again, you aren't practicing evil. You aren't robbing others of their rights. But each individual has both rights and responsibilities. And there is ever a struggle and the tension between the forms of responsibilities and the freedoms that we are given. But the best way to ensure freedom is to practice self-governance. That is not talking about the American system of government, but that you would control yourselves. Remember, the state was instituted to bear the sword and to punish evildoers. If a population or a society cannot control itself, then the government will grow because it will have to control you. If you cannot govern yourself, the government will govern you in your stead. If the populace can control itself, then the government will necessarily shrink. To put it in a pithy way, a wicked people cannot be politically free because they're wicked. And so it is the church's job to instruct the individual in righteousness and in self-denial. It is the job of parents to discipline their children so that the state won't have to discipline your children. And where the church is faithful and impactful and the family is disciplining their children, the state does not need to be large. But where the family is broken and the church is silent, the state inevitably moves in and takes over. This is what our founding fathers knew. In a myriad of ways, you can look back at our founding fathers and they said, we need religion. If this American experiment is going to work, we need religion. John Adams said this, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Only a moral and religious people can do what the founders have set off to do. That is why our Constitution is largely ignored today. Because it cannot govern a wicked people. The sphere of the authority of the self is the first government. And it is a call to control yourself. And it limits the authority of others. For example, the state, because the individual is its own sphere of authority, the state has no right whatsoever to forcibly inject people with foreign substances using its sword to get you to comply. You should all get what I'm putting out there. Whether you support vaccinations or not, to a large extent, I do not care. But the state has no right to put its sword at your neck and say, inject this in your body or else. That is a violation of the sphere of the individual. The second government, or sphere, is that of the family. God says husbands are to lead their family. They are to lead their children and their wives. Parents are have authority over their children. And this authority is likewise God-given and limited. The job of the family government is to protect, teach, and disciple their children and to multiply and to fill the earth. Husbands are to lead and defend. Wives are to submit and follow. They are to be committed to one another like Christ is committed to the church. And they are to have children. And they are to raise those children in the fear and the knowledge of the Lord. Parents are in charge of and responsible to see that their children are educated in a righteous way. Contrary to what many people think today, the, the authority over education does not come from the state. It is invested in the family. Now, the family can decide what form of education is best for their children, but that authority is given to the family, not to the state. The third government 
is the church. God has appointed the church to be his temple on earth. Here, man may approach God and come to hear his word preached. So God has established the church to be made up of local churches, like Christ's Bible Church. These churches govern themselves and are set up according to God's design, led by elders, qualified men, who are accountable to God and who are accountable to the congregation as a whole. We answer to God first, and then you are to keep us accountable. This requires not only trust, but also some level of transparency. The people of the church are to joyfully submit to this structure of leadership, including to their elders. The church's job is then to declare all of God's truth into all of life, equipping the saints, encouraging and strengthening the family, instructing the state, and proclaiming the gospel of Christ throughout the ends of the earth. Thus the church has the keys to the kingdom, and we practice the ordinances and church membership and church discipline. And fourth and finally, you have the government known as the state. As we saw last week, the state bears the sword to carry out God's justice and wrath on evildoers. In doing this, they secure the rights of their people. So in a properly functioning society, this is a very limited role. For the family, the individual, and the church are all doing their job. Brothers and sisters, this is not that society. All of these things are meant to function together. They are not right now. And to that we need to turn our attention. But the idea of sphere sovereignty is also important as we think of these different, or these different categories of authority. See, as a pastor, I have some level of authority and responsibility for my people. I do not have that for sheep from another shepherd's fold. As a father, I have special authority and responsibility over my children, but not your children. Of course, that doesn't mean I don't have any obligations to your children. It doesn't mean I can treat your children however I want. God is still God, and he still calls me to love all of my neighbors. But how that love works itself out is different because of the scope of my sphere. The nature of my relationship to my children is fundamentally different than my relationship to your children. This is a part of the limiting of a sphere. And brothers and sisters, this is also true for the state. If I ever got a tax bill from the government of Congo, I am not bound to pay it, for I have never been to Congo, have no plans of ever going, and they have no authority over me whatsoever. Each government is responsible primarily for the well-being of its own people, not for the people of other states. Really, this shouldn't be controversial, but the fact that it is today is, is mind-numbingly... Yeah, I'll just stop talking about that. Elected representatives and governing officials should put their people first. American politicians should put the interests of Americans first. Mexican politicians should put the interest of their people first. Canadian politicians should put the interest of Canadians first. That does not mean that they can treat other parts of the world however they want. 
But it does mean that their primary scope and responsibility is to their own nation, their own flock, their own family. This is part of the limiting that God has done. To seek the good of other citizens over and against the good of your own people is akin to marital infidelity. If I were to say to my wife, well, I only slept with that woman because she was really lonely and she needed me. You're still unfaithful. Again, that doesn't mean that the United States has no obligation to her neighbors or to the rest of the people of the world. But it does mean that the relationship is fundamentally different between a governing official and his people and everybody else. And that leads us to the topic of globalism versus nationalism. One of my elders asked me to elaborate on a comment I made a few weeks ago as to why nationalism is better than globalism. And of course, part of that matters as to what exactly you mean by nationalism. Well, I mean what I just said. Governing officials are primarily responsible for their own people, not for everybody else. The sphere of government plays directly into this. No nation should ever give up its sovereignty over its people to bureaucrats across the globe who don't know their people and don't care for their people. Rather, each nation should take care of its own and secure the rights of its own people. To sell your people out to the global community is to violate the very nature of your job. It is akin to a father who abandons his children to the state. The state cannot care for a child like his father can. And a global government cannot do a better job than a national or state government can do for its people. The Bible and Christianity is a global religion. Christianity is not linked to a specific nation or a specific people group. The call of the gospel goes out to the whole world. It is global. But the Bible's view of government is decidedly anti-global. It is the nations, plural, who will bend the knee to Christ, not a globalist regime. In fact, as Gary DeMar points out in his excellent book, God and Government, the Tower of Babel is the very first attempt at globalism. And God squashed it. They tried to unite under one banner and to do the exact opposite of what God had told them to do, and God cursed them and divided them. Globalism is an attempt to replace God's universal reign with the reign of man, and God is always opposed to such idolatry. Even on a practical note, globalism denies the realities of government and humanity. For example, knowing that man is sinful leads us to logically want to spread out power, not to centralize it. For absolute power corrupts absolutely. Moreover, as ministers, for that is what Romans 13 calls governing officials, the farther removed they are from their constituents, the worse things often get. Just as a megachurch of 100,000 people cannot really shepherd its people, so a global government cannot shepherd or minister to 7 billion people worldwide. It's just not the way God has designed the world. The Bible opposes globalism at every turn because only God's kingdom reaches from sea to sea. God hates globalism, and so, Christians, you too should hate it. For it violates the tenets of sphere sovereignty, and it sets up the state as a God replacement. And so any tyrant, whether local or global, is a form or an attempt to try to replace God 
and Christ. For there is, and this we should stress, there is a coming universal government. And it comes with Christ and his kingdom. Man desires it because God is going to give it. But we have to wait for God's giving of it. Believe it or not, even though it's going to be close to 80 today, Christmas is coming. And among the many declarations we find at Christmas and the birth of Christ is that of him being king. And not him being any king, but the king of kings. Listen to these familiar words from Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Many of our Christmas songs declare this reality that Christ's government is coming, is here in a sense, and it is eternal and universal. We read that this child will have the government upon his shoulders and that that government will only grow and spread throughout the entire world. And so Christ, even now, has all authority on, on earth and in heaven. But his government is still just growing. His government is not over the whole world yet in that fullest sense. But one day it will reach a universal reality. His kingdom will invade this whole world. And we will sing those great truths in our Christmas hymns. Christ is Lord, Christ is coming, and he will have this world for which he died. As far as the curse is found. And so we do not, brothers and sisters, set our hope in global governments of men. What a disaster that would be. But we do set our hope in a child who is foretold and born of a virgin, and upon whose great shoulders rests the government of the universe. And his government will increase until he returns. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord over all. So, brothers and sisters, give to Caesar his scraps, but do not give to him what is Christ. That is you, yourself. That is this world. That is your God-given rights. Do not give Caesar what is not his. We believe in the limited government of men and we believe in nations because we believe in the universal government of Jesus Christ. And we declare his coming with confidence. And until then, we want a limited government operating in its proper sphere and scope so that we can go about doing our jobs declaring the coming of that universal government in Christ. That is the charge of the church. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have given us that great promise that Christ is coming back and that he will establish his kingdom here upon earth. Lord, help us to give cheerfully to Caesar what is his. Let us be grateful and thankful for the work that he does as your minister, punishing evildoers. But Lord, keep our hearts and our minds and our hands far from ever giving to Caesar what is not his. May we live in joyful submission and declaration that Christ is the King of Kings, 
the Lord of Lords, and that upon his shoulder the government rests, and that his government will expand throughout this entire universe. Lord, hasten that day. Come quickly. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.